Hello and welcome to Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara and I am the host of this show. so much for tuning in to episode 29 of Book of Leaves. In this episode, we're going to look at food security and food sovereignty, specifically in Ireland, but also taking a look at how it works in Europe and the rest of the world with Ashling Wheeler. Before we get into that, I just want to say, first of all, I've actually moved my microphone from where it was to beside the window. So you might hear some traffic and birds in the background. I mean, Hopefully there'll be more birds than traffic, but let's see how this goes. So if you hear any any noises in the background or dogs barking, it's because I'm sitting beside the, the window in the front garden. So this episode, as I said, it will be about food security and it's for, we go into a lot of detail. So I'll keep this introduction as short as I can. But first of all, I want to thank everyone for their birthday wishes. It was my birthday on the 11th of June. Why did I have to think about that? And I turned 27 and thank you so much to everyone who sent well wishes. I really, really appreciate it. But on another note, today is Climate Case Ireland's first day in the Supreme Court. If you were listening to this on the day that it comes out, which is the 22nd of June 2020, we're in the Supreme Court today. So I hope I'm sending them all the good vibes that there is, all the good juju is going their way. And fingers crossed, we get a compassionate judge who who sees the climate mitigation plan for the not very useful document that it is that compromises our human rights. So if you're wondering, Cara, what the heck are you talking about? Go check out last week's episode with Edwin from Climate Case Ireland. And there'll be an update as well added to the end of that episode whenever we know for sure what's after happening in the Supreme Court. So go check that out. This is monumental. This is huge. So fingers crossed everything is going well there. Now, just before we get into this episode, if you do want to support this podcast, please, please recommend it to a friend, share it around. Word of mouth, I think, is the best way of of sharing podcasts more than rating and reviewing and subscribing. But that also does help. So <laughs> please do that too, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you could just give this whatever, how many stars you think it deserves and then a little review. That would be amazing and very helpful. And if you are in a position you might be able to financially support the podcast, I do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash book of leaves, where you can sign up to for various benefits to help me basically pay for the podcast hosting subscription and the website subscription and the video editing subscriptions. There's a lot of subscriptions after piling up. So any help will be greatly appreciated. And thank you so much, so much to the patrons who are already contributing. I really, really appreciate it. You have no idea how much it means and it's very, very helpful. So thank you. And if you want to make a once-off contribution, I do have a platform on which you can support to buy me a coffee or two or three called buymeacoffee.com forward slash book of leaves if you wouldn't be able to make a monthly contribution. So on that note, let me introduce you to Ashling. Ashling Wheeler is an activist that I met, an environmental activist that I know through Extinction Rebellion. And when I released the Be a Hero episode with Sinead, I think that was episode 25, 
when I released that, uh, Sinead got in touch saying Ashing would actually really love to do a whole episode dedicated just to food security. And I thought, good idea, because I have no idea what food security in Ireland is like. I have a much better grasp of it now, having chatted to Ashling, But because it's quite um, a heavy topic, there's lots to talk about, we pretty much delve straight into it. So... Ashling, I'll give you a little introduction to her. She's from Clare in the west of Ireland for anyone outside of Ireland. She's from County Clare. She studied permaculture in Kinsale. She is a language teacher and she has been growing fruit and vegetables for 14, 15 years. She is a small holder. She's got a small farm and she has a really good idea of what she's talking about. She's written a few articles, which I'll link in the show notes, about food security. And she's basically just an all-round amazing activist, genuinely working with her hands every day to grow food for herself, her family, her community, without impacting the environment in a negative way. And she's been doing it for a long time and she knows what she's talking about. So I really hope you get something out of this conversation and stick around after for some very quick show notes. Here is Ashling and enjoy. So thank you so much, Ashlyn, for sitting down and having the chats with me for a bit about food security. I guess to start off, the first thing that would be handy for listeners to know, we touched on this very, very briefly with uh, Sinead when we did a Grow Your Own Food at Home episode. But what is the definition? We're going to be hearing food security, food sovereignty. Are they the same thing? What is the definition? Well, I suppose food security um, has been defined by the UN as so all people at all times having physical and economic access to food that is nutritious and helps them to live, have a healthy lifestyle. Okay, so that is the UN definition. Food sovereignty, I suppose, takes that idea a little bit further and says that the, the people who are <laughs> eating the food, I suppose, should have control over the mechanism of production and distribution and i suppose maybe the people who are who are growing and distributing and eating the food should have control over that over those mechanisms so at the moment like ireland by the un definition ireland is like super food secure because we export 80% of our agricultural output. Ireland, I think, is ranked in the top five of food secure countries. But if you take like what you actually need in terms of nourishment in a, in a day or a year, or what's on the average plate or what should be on the average plate compared to what's being produced in our agricultural system, you know, we only basically produce meat and milk and then we export all that. And I suppose in theory, we use the money to, to buy all the other things. But like in the context of well, climate change and possible dis- disruptions to food production in other countries, you know, it actually makes us very vulnerable being really dependent on this, this import-export model. So I suppose my, my idea about food sovereignty is that we would be producing way more, a bigger diversity of things in Ireland. And it's not, it's not impossible, um, but it just doesn't fit with the current economic model. And I suppose, you know, since the 1970s, Irish agriculture has been very much pushed in the direction of producing more and more meat, more and more milk, and taking tillage land out of out of tillage and using it for for grazing or producing silage or hay instead. And the the other part of that then is that in other countries, I take Italy as 
an example because I used to live there and I know a little bit about it. If you take Ireland and Italy in, say, the 1950s, 1960s, farms were mixed farms. Every farm had animals and vegetables and fruit. When the common agricultural policy was first implemented, which I think was the 70s, uh, there was this kind of idea that, okay, well, Italy is really good at producing fruit and Ireland's really good at producing meat and milk in terms of like, you know, yield per hectare or whatever. So let's produce all the meat and milk for Europe in Ireland. And let's produce all the fruit for Europe in Italy. But obviously, if you do that, there's all kinds of things that go out of balance. An example in Ireland is that, so we've got all these animals, 7 million cows, and we have all the manure from those 7 million cows. And it has become a massive environmental problem and it pollutes our waterways um, every year. And there's always this controversy of the farmers have too much slurry and how do they get rid of it? And they want to be able to put it on the land and then they can't because it's polluting the water. And, and there, isn't, there are no tillage farmers to, to give that manure to. Like if you could compost that and sell it or give it to tillage farmers who were nearby, you would take out that problem of water pollution. And then in Italy, what has happened is exactly the opposite. It's not economical for people to have a few animals on their peach farm or their tomato farm anymore. So they actually have a shortage of manure. So they're buying more artificial fertilizer, which has its own environmental problems, um, both in production and then in the use and how it affects the soil. So by by kind of thinking of Europe as one farm and shoving everything into, you know, like the specialized areas here, there and everywhere and, and, and no diversity within one area. You're creating loads of problems, environmental problems and kind of other organizational problems that didn't exist ever before in the past. The more that I grow food and the more that I'm involved in talking to farmers and, and working on these kinds of issues, the more I realize that mixed farming is like, like totally has to be the future doesn't make any sense to grow vegetables and not have animals because you need the manure. And it doesn't make any sense to have animals and not grow something because you've got all this manure that is potentially a resource, but actually becomes a pollutant if you're not fertilizing the soil with it or composting it properly or whatever. So that's yeah. where we're at at the moment. I, yeah, because people do say we are very well off when it comes to food because we export so much, but we're not we're all we're importing the things that we need to have a healthy balanced diet there are some local farmers and organic producers in ireland but i mean i imagine that's only a tiny tiny amount like it's not enough to feed it's a tiny percentage i i think the percentage of land under organic cultivation in ireland is like less than five percent and in some countries like you know i think in austria it's in around it's over 30 percent and italy would be quite similar they'd be the, the higher end of the percentage of farmland in a, in organic production so we know we're, we're pretty pretty low and if the farmers are producing so much and exporting so much, I mean, we're also hearing that they're not getting paid what they need to be paid. Like they're living off subsidies a lot. So economically, like how how much is it really doing, you know? And the pandemic that we're in now has kind of given us a glimpse into what we can see things being shut down in an emergency so you know a lot of flights are grounded but thankfully the post is still going we're still getting imports in you know deliveries and like that are happening but with climate change there is a chance of god knows what happening and 
they're being cut off like like um imports physically not being able to make it to to ireland for whatever reason and what what would happen then like how much are we actually relying on imports to feed us massively because okay so first i'd say like our agricultural output is meat and dairy products i think it's about 80 percent of what we produce is exported but in order to feed all those animals especially during the winter we actually import grain like you know like pellets nuts but it's made Mm -hmm. of grain and pulses mother country so so that's imported maize soya wheat barley coming from well all over the world but it comes from brazil russia turkey kazakhstan france all of those are countries that are actually way more vulnerable right now to climate impacts than we are so you know droughts in spain or turkey or france are becoming a lot more frequent and of longer duration those countries, obviously, if there's drought, they, they will see a decline in their production of grain and stuff. And so either prices will go up or they just won't have as much to export. In the current situation with the pandemic, what I'm aware of at least three countries that have, who are big grain producers who have put limitations on how much they're exporting. So that's Russia, Kazakhstan and Vietnam. So they're all countries in the top 10 of grain exporters that have basically said, no, we can see what's happening. Well, we see there's a problem. We don't know where it's going and we're going to keep our food supplies for our people. Okay. What happens, our agriculture is dependent on grain and pulses being grown elsewhere. So what happens then? Like if prices go up, then our, the cost of the things we're producing is going to go up and our people are going to buy them. You know, another another thing that I think about a lot is Spain is really, really vulnerable to to drought. And I think we're going to see like serious decline in agricultural production in Spain over the next five to 10 years. And that's where we get a lot of our fresh fruit and vegetables from. Like I've often thought about (laughs) if food production is in difficulty, that causes social unrest. And are you going to have a situation where Spanish people are going to allow food be exported from their country when there are shortages 100 you know? yeah so like that's one part of it and then in, in i mean i suppose i've always been thinking about this and thinking about food security and growing my own food and encouraging people to do it because of climate change but but this situation with the pandemic you know it's 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 quite similar because the the problem is these long supply chains and one one issue that i think um is going to be very relevant this summer in in spain in particular is like migrant workers so most of the fresh fruit and vegetables that comes from particularly from the south of spain is harvested by migrant workers from the north of africa now spain has been hit very hard by this pandemic and they they're just easing out of lockdown now but you know are they going to allow all these people to, to come in every to come in this summer to pick the stuff like they usually do are there going to be restrictions what implications are that is that going to have for stuff getting out to the shop shelves in in the uk or ireland i don't know but i think those things are worth thinking about you know and especially for the things that we don't need to have imported like we don't need to import lettuce or broccoli <laughs> or strawberries because you can grow them here you know like i have lettuce outdoors in my garden like that i can harvest right now in may okay there may be part of the year where if you wanted to have fresh lettuce all the time you might have to grow it in polytunnels but 
it doesn't really make any sense to me that you would be importing things that you can produce here. Yeah. You know? And how do you think it like that changed very recently? That's only a recent generational thing. What do you think was the reason all of a sudden we stopped, you know, your, your family stopped having their patch of their veg patch and we're now producing meat and dairy like all we're doing is animal farming early what changed well, well the common agricultural policy changed so so th- and that 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 i already talked about this kind of specializing of agriculture in particular regions like specializing in one product in a particular region and, and moving away from mixed farming there was very much a push in the 70s and 80s to get farmers out of mixed farming and more efficiency and Whatever, but like if efficiency, I think in that context really means profit making, and it doesn't take the other factors into consideration, like food security and food sovereignty and environmental health, um, and biodiversity and all of those other things that are equally important. But there's no financial importance put on them, not at the mm. moment, anyway. Um, so I suppose that's one thing that changed. I mean, I think another thing that changed is that because all the, the the supermarkets and the advertising and all kinds convenience of convenience buying. Yeah, I suppose the convenience of being able to buy everything like, you know, you don't have to, well, you don't have to grow it. You don't even have to wash it now. You can buy all your vegetables pre-washed or even pre-sliced and all of that kind of thing, um, which is all great when it's all working. But when when there are interruptions to that supply, then people really kind of panic. And, and I think that's why it's really good to have much shorter supply chains. And, you know, another another aspect of it as well is the, the price that people are willing to pay for food is very related, obviously, to how much disposable income they have. And now, compared to, like, the 1980s when I was growing up, um, the percentage of your household income that you spend on, on having a roof over your head has, what, doubled, tripled? So people... Okay theoretically wages are higher but people are spending way more of that money just on the mortgage or on the rent and so they want to spend less on food in in lots of cultures it's lots of places in different times in history whatever it's very normal to spend like 25 to 50 percent of your household income on food but but i suppose it also means that if you're going to spend that much money on food you're going to probably have to spend less money on other stuff like overpriced housing or I don't know, other, all the things that in Western cultures we spend money on that aren't really necessary. Sure. So if we're looking systematically, what needs to be done? Like, are there any, have there been any attempts to kind of improve food security and food sovereignty in Ireland? Or like, where are we at in regards to government? Oh, not by government. No, zero. Okay. Because they're still very much fixed on, like, if you if you listen to any Department of Agriculture officials, and also the part, like, say the IFA, like, if you listen to anything that they say, I mean, they don't really talk about food security, but if they do, the message is we're super food secure because we produce way more than we need, and there's no breakdown of like, but we actually produce no carbohydrates or we don't produce anything that will provide the vitamins and minerals you need in your diet. So no, on, on a government level, there's absolutely no, no kind of initiatives that I'm aware of to try and get farmers to 
diversify or very little like so there are schemes where farmers get paid to improve you know to improve the biodiversity on their land or like they get can get paid for putting in ponds and preserving wetlands and stuff that mm. tends to be taken up much more by farmers in the west of Ireland in the, the poorer agricultural land and in the meantime the farmers in the east just plow down their hedgerows and get rid of their ponds and wetlands and they make the money out of producing the the meat and the milk so like one thing i think that the, the government could and should do is to incentivize farmers to at least produce more of their own feed for the animals so you know the southeast has always been the the part of the country where where grain production but there's more grain production and yields are higher and stuff. Mm. But here in Clare as well, like oats and barley were very commonly grown here until the 70s. Um, but now there's this kind of conception that, oh, you can't grow grain here. It won't grow. It'll, you, oh, you, you, you know, you get this tiny yield or, you know, and it's, it's really not true. Um, like it's totally possible i've done it myself with no machinery and no previous knowledge and no like small amounts but like it's really possible <laughs> to grow those things and um, but what's missing now is the infrastructure to process it so people don't have any harvesting or threshing machinery anymore people don't know how to grind uh, their own great flour from grain and stuff like that and and another thing that people used to grow a lot around here was um, they call them mangles, but it's a type of a swede. It's like in the turnip swede family, um, a root vegetable that they grew for animals and fed them during the winter. So you'd store it in a shed and, and all animals, pigs, cows, even sheep probably were given them during the during the winter. You know, so on your on your farm, you'd always have a dedicated part. You know, you would rotate, but you'd have a dedicated part where you'd grow your feed. And I know farmers do produce their own silage and their own hay, and some farmers are self-sufficient in in feedstock, but a lot of them aren't, and they're being encouraged to increase numbers, and they could, but they can only do that because they're able to import the stuff from elsewhere. Mm. And I think you know, in the in the context of climate change, like we've really got to think about how do you provide all of your nutritional needs, how do we keep the soil healthy. How do we provide livelihoods for people and, and nutrition for people? We have to be asking all those questions about our agricultural system, not just how can we make money? Yeah, definitely. And you touched on soil health there. So how are we fair? Like how important is soil health? I've heard, I remember seeing a quote once saying the human race can only exist due to like a few inches of topsoil or something like that. So can you tell us a bit about that and what the, how it is looking in Ireland at the moment? Okay. Well, so soil fertility is dropping in Ireland. Um, there hasn't been a heap of research on it, but, but the, so Chagas, which is, you know, the agricultural research body of the government um, have been doing some research on this. So the way they measure it, as well, so so depth of topsoil would be one aspect of it. Um, so that's how much how much. To, so the topsoil is the top layer that has more of the organic matter in it and more of the um, like things like worms and stuff in it that are that are breaking down the organic matter in the soil. And then the the subsoil would have less 
microbial activity and less organic matter. So, so the depth of topsoil is one aspect of it. The, the number of microorganisms per, maybe it's per gram of soil, I don't know. Um, but so, so, so microbial activity is really important. So the more different species of plant you have, the more different species of bacteria and microorganisms you have. And that's all vital for soil health. So when farmers are encouraged to get rid of the wild plants and sow the ryegrass instead, they don't do it every year, but um, they, they sow grass and it's not a native type of grass, it's called Italian ryegrass. So when you do that, you kind of create a monoculture and that's not good for the soil. Um, and it also means that if the cattle are eating that, that their manure is going to have less of a variety of microorganisms, less of a variety of micronutrients in it. So when it goes back into the soil, in terms of soil health, soil fertility, it's it's not as good as kind of the wilder fields that have never been resown, that have more of a, a you know a higher number of species. So that's one aspect of it. Drainage, I think, is another something that really damages soil health here. So there's this this idea, especially here in the West, that you know there's too much rain in this country. Uh, the soil is too wet, we need to do everything we can to get the water out of the soil. And that's not always the best management plan either. Um, and and, and I, I think it also like it results in, in people trying to, you know, they're trying to grow silage or they're trying to graze animals on land that maybe isn't suitable or, the, or on land that maybe needs less, less traffic on it because the, the soil around here uh, is quite heavy clay, has very small particles. So when it's wet and you stand on it, whether you're an animal or a, or a person, and those particles like squish together and it gets compacted. And the higher the clay content, the, the, the more compaction you get. Sometimes people will go into a wet field with the tractor, drive over the wet soil, compacting it all, dig these trenches to get the water off the soil. And in the meantime, they do more harm to the actual natural drainage capacity of the soil mm. than, than, they, than they've done good, you know? And in terms of thinking of, say, like Ireland as well, as like we think of it as an island and as different geographical features having importance in regulating climate and stuff like that, you know, draining things like bogs and draining wet fields and wetlands to plant trees on them for forestry or to or to graze more cattle on you know it, it, it impacts the ability of the soil to retain water you know if you're draining all of the water out of a bog it's got to go somewhere and so you know that's very related to um all the flooding that we you know this like obviously the, there is more rainfall but also land management practices mean that the that the soil is less able to absorb um the water and and there's there's you know the, the water table is higher and we we need more of those places like wetlands and bogs to to naturally as natural drainage areas instead of this idea that we have to dig drains in every field and get the water out but there's not really any comprehensive plan of where that water is going to go yeah it's just sorting yourself getting it off your own field and it's a it's a worry for later like we'll yeah. if it creates a problem we'll worry about it then but yeah. for now it's a quick fix or something yeah and obviously with water and drainage and, and water draining into streams and rivers and whatever, like you have to think of it 
as the catchment area of the river. You have to look at it as as a as a bioregion related to a particular river river or a particular you know river basin with it, like the the drainage area. You you can't just look at it on a farm by farm basis because like you know my farm my farm is on the same hill as my neighbor's farm. You know, obviously the water that's that's coming off mine or coming off his, they're all it's all going to the same place. We we can't have separate water management plans on our farms. It doesn't make any sense. Now there is a bit of government policy on that in recent years, and they do have um river basin management plans for the major rivers and it's divided up by region in, in a in a logical way according to the rivers, not according to just county boundaries and stuff. So that is that is useful um and it's a step in the right direction but i think it needs to go further you know right. and there needs to be more um yeah i think there needs to be more of a focus on soil health and soil biodiversity and and biodiversity within fields and how for anyone listening who doesn't know what's the difference between monoculture and permaculture monoculture is is growing like basically one species in a given area um usually for food production or it could be for textile production as well like cotton for example but um so what we have in ireland basically is a monoculture of grass that is used to feed a monoculture of cattle and permaculture is the name comes from permanent agriculture so it is and it's it's actually a, a design system of how to design agriculture and agricultural and food production systems so that they are more sustainable but so, so that they they mimic the natural ecosystem so in ireland our natural what they call climax vegetation if you if you just if you just took all the humans out of ireland mm. for, for 10 years i don't know what you're going to do with them and you just let the land rewild it it would in 50 years it would be forest again most most of it yeah okay? so that natural climax vegetation so permaculture would look at trying to create a food production system that mimics as closely as possible the natural climax vegetation of the particular area. So, um, so you would have trees in in your agricultural landscape. Um, you would have like, and not just trees in grassland, but you have the whole, like say the seven layers of the forest. You have the ground cover layer, the root layer. You have climbers. You have shrubs. You have herbaceous layer. You have understory trees and you have um, canopy trees so um, I have part of my land planted like that as a forest garden so I have bigger trees like apples and nuts and then I have smaller fruit trees and fruit bushes all kind of grown in with each other and it's a little bit wild but it's there about six or seven years now and it's starting to kind of mature and it's actually really lovely yeah it's like a more natural habitat but it produces food we have the option, I suppose, of if we don't need the food in a given year, we can just leave it there for, for the birds and so on. Or if we want to, we can do things like net the fruit bushes and harvest the fruit if we feel that we that we need to. So yeah, so like so that's so that's permaculture. But permaculture is a lot more than that. You know, it's really about designing systems so that they work the way an ecosystem works. Yeah. You know? So that there aren't any waste like what I was talking about before about having if you have only cows and no vegetables then you you don't have any work anything to do with the manure and it becomes a problem so permaculture is all about like you know if you if you have an output it has to be an input to something else 
yeah so like other you know other examples would be like well you know we keep chickens like chickens are a really important part of how i manage my garden actually because so we eat the eggs we sometimes eat the chickens um, i actually use the chickens natural behavior of scratching and pecking to do some of the gardening for me so i have these like um wire bottomless cages they're quite big like they're eight foot by four foot i put three or four chickens in them for a few hours at a time on top of an area that say i've just harvested the veg vegetables out of and they scratch around and they dig up worms and bugs and stuff and they also manure it okay. and then so i don't have to dig it basically so you're kind of harvesting the 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 natural behavior and the natural production of the chickens to do something useful in the garden when you um keep all your chickens in a in a barn and they have no access to natural um to natural habitat you know they start to scratch and peck and fight each other mm -hmm. instead of scratching at the ground you know so 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 their natural behavior their natural output becomes a problem and permaculture is all about like getting that balance and 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 using what nature does in a way that benefits us for our yeah. food production and is it possible, I mean, you're talking about your farm here and I guess I'm edging towards what we as individuals can do to help in regards to food security. We can start growing our food at home, I guess. And what would your kind of guidelines be? Um, what would you say to people who are concerned about food security? Well, I suppose the first thing I would say is that like, yes, you, you can produce a lot of stuff even in a small garden. And um, there are some great examples if you look online for permaculture and especially urban permaculture. There are some amazing examples of people producing tons of stuff in very small suburban gardens. So there are definitely ways uh, to do that. I suppose maybe start with the things you really like to eat. Start with things that are easier to grow in your climate. Like don't be like me and start planting melons on the first first year you go you go growing um uh and i suppose maybe maybe like focus on doing if you're if you're genuinely gardening for the first time like focus on two or three things and do them well don't do what i did and decide that the first year you grow anything you're going to do half an acre <laughs> that's what i did it wasn't, it wasn't really a great plan but um but I suppose the, the other thing, when you're talking about food security and growing stuff at home, like realistically, most people are not going to provide for most of their food needs in their suburban garden. And then you have all the things like people in rented accommodation and people who physically don't have the ability. So one thing I would love to see people doing um, is, and I have had this idea for a few years about asking farmers to diversify is like just one acre. Ask a farmer that you know to to divert just one acre of their farm to something that's not grass and cows and if you can do and if they can do that in a way where maybe they feel feel supported by local people or by that people want them to do it and would pay them to do it but i think you know that could be really um positive because i think you know like time is really running out in terms of climate change and and like making us more resilient and stuff. And if we wait for governments to implement policies in the current system, like, you know, like we could all be starving in 10 years time. So community supported agriculture is um, a different economic model of farming, where instead of the farmer kind of having to be on their own financially or dependent on subsidies from the government 
that the community, the people who are going to eat the food, uh, pay for it in advance. So say, so I say I look at my farm and I say, okay, well, so I'd probably realistically this year be able to feed ten households. So and I'd be able to feed them X, Y, and Z crops and maybe some eggs and a few chickens. Um, so I'm going to find ten people who are able to commit to to buying the stuff from me, and they would pay a fixed price for the year. And ideally in the CSA model, they would pay upfront so that the farmer doesn't have to borrow money to do things like buy seeds or buy young chicks or, you know, so it's keep the banks out of it. Now, like in Ireland, in Ireland, I don't know, that's like maybe not as, as necessary. I know there's a CSA farm near us where the people pay, I think per month or they pay, maybe it's, they pay a, every second month over the year. But the idea is that the farmer has a kind of a financial security is getting paid in advance. Um, and that regardless of how much they produce, they're still going to get more or less the same amount of money. So that like, I've grown potatoes every year for the last seven or eight years. Uh, some years, and the, the, the yield varies wildly. Like I would say some years, it's a quarter of what it is in other years. Um, so in a CSA model, it's not just the farmer that takes that hit. It means that the people who are members who are paying for the food will just get less potatoes in their box mm. that year, but they might get a lot more of something else. And and that's where, like, that's where mixed farming comes into it as well, because if you're only growing potatoes and it's a bad year, you're screwed. But if you're growing some potatoes and some pumpkins and some grain and some other things, well, you haven't put all your eggs in one basket. And it's like, even if a year is very wet or extremely hot and there's drought, like if you have a variety of crops, nearly always you're going to have something that does really well and you have more of. And that's more like a natch. That's, that's the way it's always been. People have eaten what's available and what is in season and what is good this year. People... You know, until very recently, people didn't go, well, I want to eat peppers, therefore I must have peppers. They they went, oh, peppers grow well here. Let's let's eat them. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like my mom got an orange for Christmas and that was a huge thing. Whereas now we can buy an I Literally, there's a mace across the road and I can buy an orange. Whenever. And yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, I mean, I think and if you talk to anyone... Um, over a certain age, they'll tell you that story of like the orange for Christmas and it was so exciting and, or see our bananas, like, you know, that was a, a big luxury and excitement seeing, you know, bananas or like a, my aunt who's like in her seventies now, uh, you know, I remember her talking about seeing exotic vegetables like uh, garlic and peppers and courgettes in the shops wow. for the first time. And being like kind of really excited by the idea of it, but like and buying all these peppers and then not knowing what to do with them. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> but but you know, I think maybe our expectations are a bit too high, and 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 people have lost also because you know we we've lost our skills for growing, and we've lost our expectation of what's normal and what is seasonal. So you know, you know, people don't really have a concept of. Well, this actually now, May, is the time of the year where there's the least amount of stuff available to eat. Um, you're really busy in the garden, but nothing's ready yet. And everything from the last winter is is kind of finished or not like it's 
if you're storing root vegetables and stuff, they're not in the best of condition now at this stage, especially if the weather's got warmer. And all these things that people knew and took for granted and worked around. And now we're just clueless. We have no idea. Like, and my children mm. are, you know, they see strawberries in the supermarket in January and they think, like, I'm the most evil, terrible person in the world because I won't buy them for them, you know. <laughs> and even though they live here and they grow we grow all our own stuff and they know when is strawberry season here they still don't understand that it's like a really crazy weird thing to have strawberries in january in Ireland, you know yeah and i I think loads of people are like that they don't really know what's what's seasonal but we we it's we do we've done it with everything we've done it with fashion we've done it with travel we'll gain we'll quickly adopt a new habit of convenience we'll really quickly adapt to a new way of life like Mm -hmm. buying our clothes instead of making them or uh, focus on hand-me-down it's the same with food but I read a really interesting article the other day I'll try link it in the show notes if I can find it that we can relearn the habits that we lost like we can adopt a new way of life just like we adopted the one that we're in now Um, Mm -hmm. and it will also help our mental health and it will help us become more aware of the 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 value and things we've lost the value in food and we've lost the value in the soil and that is creating a huge problem for for the environment obviously um and there's only good can only good and good things can come out of kind of reconnecting with that and reconnecting with what our grandparents how they lived as well mm. obviously not everything was perfect back then but no. there's things that we can learn no, from i really think that you can take the good things of life back then and you can take the good things of life now and get rid of all the unsustainable unnecessary stuff like i don't know plastic toys and fast fashion and having to fly somewhere on holiday three times a year you can get rid of all of that stuff and still have some really good things about our current lifestyle like good medical care and um, good education and good like access to information and not have all the nonsense and and also have good healthy fresh food you know I mean and like you said like there's nothing like going out in the garden and you know getting up at midnight and picking the slugs off your vegetables or having the trauma of like your whole potato crop being killed by blight to, to really really make you appreciate the value of food you know, like there's nothing, there's nothing like that. I mean, it has totally changed my uh, relationship with food and even the way I cook and everything. Because before I started growing my own stuff, I was like, okay, what do I want to eat tonight? Oh, I've got to make this recipe. You make this list, you go, you get your stuff, you make the thing. Whereas now it's like, oh, what's ready? What's available? Um, you know, or like, oh, I have loads of whatever. I have loads of courgettes this week. What am I, what interesting things can I do with them rather than like, I, I want to eat this you know like it's a different you just have, it's a different mindset yeah you know? um but you know and, and it, but it is something I think that brings a lot of joy to people when they start doing it like I see with my kids how excited they are now this week it's the first peas already in the polytunnel and they're like they're so excited it's better than a new movie or going to a birthday party it is like then every morning they go they up and they're dashing out to the tunnel and they're sitting there before they even had breakfast like eating the sweet peas and that's so lovely like yeah you know, and that's achievable for everybody 
and I, you know, I think it, it's it's when you you know these days we can feel very out of control, or like like we're not in control of our lives, you know, as corporations and government and and you can and you can feel. And I think with the pandemic and stuff like that, people feel that a lot as well. You know, like that they're not in control of their own lives, but growing your own food gives you that sense of control and independence. You know that I don't need to go to the supermarket like I'm kind of anticipating now that in about four weeks I will only have to go to the supermarket for just things that we want <laughs> rather than things wow. that we you know so uh, well dairy products because we don't keep any dairy animals but I, I can if I want to go and buy milk off my neighbor so um yeah so in theory I don't need after June from June to December I don't really need uh to go to the shop and that's a really empowering feeling that's amazing that's so amazing so it is possible for sure cool thank you so much you have to dash off now okie doke so that was Ashling. we wrapped things up fairly quick she had to run off so thank you so much Ashling, for your time and for those chats and i really hope you guys listening or watching if you're on YouTube got something from that and if you've any questions please do not hesitate to get in touch and if you like this episode and you're interested in learning more about food security or how to grow your own food go check out episode 25 with Sinead from Be A Hero which is a campaign encouraging people whether you're renting and all you have is a windowsill or community spaces or you have an acre to spare lucky you if you want to grow your own food it's just a lovely community where people from all various kind of stages in their growing experience just come together and help each other out with any questions or queries that you might have so check out the be a hero community on facebook and go give that episode a listen if you want to start growing it's never too late there's some things that you might not be able to grow now you might not be able to sow now because they won't grow but there's certain vegetables and fruits that will literally grow all year round and herbs that will grow all year round so it is literally never too late in the year to start sowing some food it is possible and of course as always share this with a friend spread the message the more we educate each other the more power it gives us to make the right decisions for ourselves and the planet i think that is everything (laughs) if you have any questions any suggestions for the podcast please get in touch don't forget to follow me on instagram and book of these podcast i'm also on twitter and facebook and if you can share this episode with a friend rate review subscribe that would be amazing and we are coming up to july july is now known as plastic free july so the next two episodes that will be released in july will all be related to plastic in some way shape or form thank you so much for listening I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week sending my love and juju to Climate Case Ireland again and I'll keep you guys posted on my social media what happen- with what happens there. Sending you lots of love. Don't forget to wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and I will talk to you in two weeks time guys. Take care. Bye.